1: Recruit, get over here. Yes, sir. What's my name, maggot? Sergeant Wolf, sir. And do you know how long I've been a drill instructor here at camp, marching back and forth in the blazing sun? No, sir. Thirty-five years! And during that time, do you know when I've seen a more measly ass cream puff cream-puffed, decoy, pink panty cupid human-duck-decoi, pink-panty-cupid-all-slice-of-cilantro-flavored-artisanal-meatloaf than the one I'm looking at right now? No, sir. Never, never in the thirty-five years. You are the worst sack of uselessness to walk through the gates of camp, marching back and forth in the blazing sun in that time. Now drop and give me some push-ups until you get tired.
0: Until I... what, sir?
1: Until you get tired. I mean, you have to listen to your body, right? I think so, sir. Totally. I mean, the whole stress and recovery approach to fitness is really discredited as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it really makes more sense to control your heart rate and breathing so that when you need to, you can get more out of your own body. I've got a really interesting book about that at my quarters if you want to borrow it at any time. Yes, sir. I was kidding! Do you think I would let a disgusting little walking, talking puffball of cotton candy borrow one of my books? Now drop and do some push-ups until the end of recorded history, maggot. The rest of you listen to this show about fatigue. And now he just switched to a computer mouse shaped like a kettleball. Colin McEnroe.
2: Yeah, that's one of the ways that I'm sort of testing my outer limits. Is, uh, my uh, mouse is going to be a little bit more challenging for me right now. Uh, we're, today, we're going to be talking about fatigue. We're going to talk about the sort of mind-body connection of fatigue uh, and, and some of the new things that are being said about it, and in some cases, some of the very ancient things that have been said about it and we are being reminded of with some frequency. So uh, here in the studio with me is Shankara Newton. Uh, he has been teaching yoga for over 28 years. I have been in many of his uh, yoga classes. In fact, I've been in lots of yoga classes, but when I, we were were thinking about this show, I said to Betsy Kaplan, well, the person who talks about this the most is Shankara, uh, talks most about this sort of idea of fatigue and, and reaction to, to physical activity as something that's produced in the mind. And that uh, in some cases, yoga can kind of take you beyond. So, um So we said he had to come. He's also in private practice as a marriage and family therapist. Uh, Joining us uh, from Toronto uh, at the CBC Studios is Alex Hutchinson. He's a freelance science journalist and columnist for Runner's World, writes their Sweat Science blog. He's the author of Which Comes First, Cardio or Weights, and wrote the December 12th article, What is Fatigue for the New Yorker, which inspired us to do this show. You'll be meeting some other uh, guests as we go along here, but let's start out with those two. So Alex Hutchinson, it's, it's not a new idea, obviously, to talk about, um, the role of the mind in any kind of endurance exercise. Um, you know, the Navy SEALs even have, I think, this uh, uh, saying about mind over matter. If I don't mind, it doesn't matter. Uh, so that's not a new idea. What seems to be a new idea is to suggest that that the actual fatigue, which slows us down and eventually stops us, might be something other than uh, a condition created by our heart, our lungs, our muscles, things going on in the body. That, that, that some of that um, is, is almost more, some of what we feel really is produced by the mind rather than our physiology. Maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's uh, like you said, it's not a new idea to say that the mind plays a role in fatigue. E- everybody knows that. Um, but there's a tendency, I think, certainly for, for me, thinking about it over the years, it's, it, it always seemed like a sort of fuzzy concept that, uh, almost like a placebo. I mean, of course the mind matters, but the fundamental reality is what's happening in your muscles. It's the, you know, it's your heart pumping, can it pump any more oxygen, or it's how much lactic acid in your in your muscles, and so what's being argued now and it's it's very controversial I should say it's still it's still a sort of topic of debate but some researchers are now flipping that flipping that around and saying the reality is what happens in your mind because that's where the decision comes whether to you know to take another step or to to lift another weight and and that in fact what when we what we perceive as physical limits are not in fact limits they're just the point at which uh, the effort required to to keep going exceeds our our motivation to continue so it's it's a shift in perspective uh, as much as it is a sort of totally new idea
2: and in some but in some ways um, we've had many clues to this in the past including uh, in one of your in your New Yorker article you begin with Roger Bannister but one of the interesting things about Bannister of course is that in 1954 he did something that people thought was unthinkable he ran a mile in less than four minutes um, now it was really something that nobody had ever done before in the history of timekeeping at, at, at sanctioned track meets, uh, and people thought nobody could do it. He had an, a, a rival at the day time named John Landy, who in a very short time later, it was six weeks later, uh, Landy did the same thing, and he actually got an almost significantly better time than uh, Bannister. And 13 months after that, no, three more runners did this. And, and so the strong suggestion here is, and a mile's a good test, right, too, because you obviously have to be very fast to run a mile fast. But it's a pretty complicated argument that's going on the whole time. Between running really fast and managing your fatigue, so you've got something left, and, and that somehow or the, this four-minute wall was—I mean, I mean there's was like high school kids who run four-minute miles now, uh, but but the psychological shift that happened at that time allowed a whole bunch of new people to to break this barrier.
3: Yeah, for sure, and 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 I, what you say about the mile is is right on. You know, because if we think about the hundred meters, uh, you know, that's a physical limit too, but there's not a lot, a whole lot of time for the brain to come into. To, to play, I mean, sure, it does in terms of whether you tighten up and, and hear the starting gun fast enough. But the mile is a great uh, sort of uh, battle between the mind and the muscles. And and Roger Bannister has been held up for you know, I guess it's sixty years now as a as an example of this sort of breaking a mental barrier opens the gates for everybody else. Uh, but but again, it's it's one of those things where we can all understand that on an intuitive level. And and if I say, yeah, you know believing in yourself or believing in, in that something is possible is important. We all smile and nod, but it, can we take it to another level and say, can we measure this sort of effect? Can we go beyond this sort of general placebo kind of idea and say, no, actually, it's not just a metaphor that the mind is, it, you know, mind is, is more important than the muscles. We can do these experiments now, like the one I wrote about in the article, which used subliminal messages, to subliminal, subliminally flash, uh, flashing, you know, happy faces or sad faces to effectively change the physical limits. And when that happens, it's more than just, yeah, you have to believe in yourself and you have to have heart. It's, you know, the fundamental signals that are being processed in your brain, we, we can tweak those and, and change your physical limits.
2: So, and by the way, we will uh, talk uh, later in the show to Samuel Marcora, one of the um, scientists that that, uh, Alex is talking about. But Shankara, in your world, you'd say, well, this isn't something that's new or 50 years old, that this is 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years old, that the limits we experience are limits really that are created in our minds rather than our physical realities.
0: Right, that's right. You know, my early training in yoga – almost 30 years ago it was presented the idea that the yogis were the the old ancient yogis they're known as rishis they were consummate scientists and they devoted literally their whole lives and every every moment to how to first uh, access the body's full potential but to use that for more than just achieving some kind of miraculous physical feat which often they did but to use it for also more transcendent purposes and it was essentially to access every resource every capacity in the body and to do that inevitably they would encounter all of the the preconceived notions preconceived limitations every belief every thought that the mind will present will project in order to you know sabotage or limit those that those limit uh, those limit uh, unlimited capacities so in the settings I work in, primarily as a yoga teacher and meditation teacher, but also I carry that into my private practice. I'm, I witness this firsthand all the time, people just constantly putting that next barrier, the next limit up in their mind. And when investigated more thoroughly, more in-depth, they end up realizing it is just a projection of the mind and somehow they can work to get through that, around that, past that, they end up discovering some new capacity, new strength, new power within their bodies or within themselves.
2: Now, I'm going to ask both of you about this, uh, but I'll start with you, Shankara. So one response to this, and it's the very typical American response, is, Oh, really? There's sort of no limits? Then I will just push past my limits. I will just push myself harder and harder and I will get past my limits. And so you see that. We've, we've seen it. In, we see it even in the world of yoga, whether people are going to Bikram and working out at you know, these uh, super hot temperatures or uh, I know that the studio where you uh, teach, you know, they've had Anna Forrest comes in. She'd has a very very rigorous style of yoga uh, and it seems to me that what you're talking about is something that begins on the inside and works to the outside but Americans have a little bit of a tendency to begin on the outside and work to the inside it's like I'll just get my body to do all this stuff and I'll figure out the interior part later
0: yeah I, I love that that's you know we see a lot of different high high calm high octa- high octane athletes um, People doing multiple marathons, triathletes, so on. I mean, people just love the physicality of the work. But, yeah, precisely what you said, that the yoga approach is working with the internal as a way to then have it come to some kind of fruition externally, so to speak, in their bodies or in their lifestyles. And I find the key is what yoga in traditions like yoga, and there there are many out there, um, the, the approach is one of balance. And it's not one of trying to will one's way over some preconceived idea, but rather to more understand it or more explore it and inquire into it. And it's subtle work, but it's so much of what I see in terms of when people are pushing themselves and trying to push past their limitations is that inevitably at some point they lose connection with what in yoga we call the wisdom of the body, or we call wisdom of prana. It's that innate intelligence inside of us. So, you know, somehow, like my brother, is a, he's a triathlete. He competes all the time at the Ironman and has been to Hawaii and their, their big challenge. And I get to see that with him as well. It's His, his endurance, his sustenance comes much more from being more connected, more attuned internally rather than from some idea he's got to push, push, push past it. The the real inherent limitation with that whole pushing mentality of the West is inevitably there There comes a mental fatigue with that, not just you, know, you can push only so far and then eventually even the mind has its own limitations, how far it can push through things.
2: So, um, Alex Hutchinson, let me uh, confront you with the, the story of a different runner, not Roger Bannister, but uh, Alberto Salazar. So in the 19, early 1980s, Alberto Salazar uh, dominated the world of marathon running. And it was really clear watching Salazar that he was just in a whole different realm in terms of his relationship to pain uh, and to fatigue, that he just could bash through wall after wall after wall. And a lot of times he would finish the race and, like, literally just get into an ambulance. He finished, He won races and then he would leave in an ambulance, which always struck me as kind of of counterintuitive somehow. And sometimes he would have hypothermia and sometimes he would have hyperthermia, but whatever. He didn't make any difference. He would just do that. But as I'm sure you know, in the field that you're in, Salazar in his 40s started to have pretty significant heart problems. Um, And not that anybody can make an ironclad connection, but I found myself thinking, wow, was he running past all of his body's and his mind's conversation with him that really amounted to, no, n- really stop now. <laughs> you know, this, Maybe you think fatigue is primarily mental, but it's also physical. You're straining a lot of parts of your body. And, and I know from your writing, Alex, that this is a conversation and maybe even a controversy going on in this world of physiologists and trainers.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, so Alberto Salazar is a great sort of example and thought experiment and case to think about. Um, it, he, like you said, he, I mean, he had he had the last rites read to him, uh, and uh, after after some races, so is that because he pushed his limits too far? Is that because he's uh, he he was able to to get to his actual physical limits? Uh, it's an interesting question, and I think the, if you look at the specific races he ran, the the the, tr- the when he most got in trouble, it was running in hot conditions. And, and so, it, yeah, I think it's an interesting thing to wonder as to whether he was able to, you know, we, we, I think we all leave ourselves with a margin of safety, whether we like it or not. And so is it possible that he, uh, you know, exceeded his margin of safety? And, and it, it is. And, it, and I think it's something to, to worry about or to, to at least to, to bear in mind. But I also think going back to something that Shankara said about balance and, and, and sort of the conflict between or the, the contrast between internal and external um, I think, it, it, in a way, we you know it's it's useful to to think about those two things, but it's also artificial to divide them into two into internal and external. And that uh, whether you're you're following a, a you know a path of yoga teaching or or whether you're spending a decade or a few decades uh, developing as a long distance runner or something, you're developing your body and your mind at the same time. And and there, at least to my way of thinking of things, uh, y- y- you have to you have to acknowledge the role of both. And to to focus only on one, and to say that Alberto was only a physical specimen, or to to say as you as you were saying earlier that you can just focus on the mind and say I'm going to push past my limits. Either either way, you're 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 not seeing the whole picture because the body and mind are, are all you know they're in a sense flip sides of the same coin. And so when we talk about limits, uh, physical limits depend on your your mental capacity, like you said, and mental limits depend on your physical capacity. There there is no such thing as just deciding that you're going to. You know uh jump twenty five feet or or uh, or win the tour de france so anyway that a bit of a ramble but but I think it's important to to remember that the mind and the body are uh connected and and you can't exploit one without uh considering the other.
2: We're talking about fatigue. We're talking about endurance. We're talking about the degree to which it, it may be uh, a mental phenomenon. I want to ask both of you about this, too. I'll start with you, Shankara. Part of the conversation that we're having right now um, implies, I think falsely, uh, and I'm the false implier, obviously, is that this is um, a solitary activity, which exercise can be. Um, but for the most part, uh, no one is alone, as they say in Into the Woods, and that um, uh, there's always at least... Um, a third voice, but there's there's my mind, uh, there's my what my body is telling me, and there's often a, a third voice, and sometimes it's actually your voice, Shankara, telling me what I can or cannot do, or what I well, ought, ought to be doing at, at a given moment, and that's a very complicated relationship. In some ways, I I find, and I think a lot of people find that if somebody, if a yoga instructor tells me to hold a plank pose, you know, for until they tell it's time to do something else. I actually will experience fatigue sooner than if I'm just in my living room trying to hold a flat plank pose and there's nobody there because I'm worried. I'm worried about when Shankara is going to let me out of this asana. You know? And so my body, you know, I mean, another person can either be a tremendous motivator. And Alex, in just a second, we'll talk about how that happens. But sometimes also in the area of endurance, another person can be. You can you can use that person to create a lot of anxiety inside yourself. You must see that in students and in classes uh, as you teach.
0: Yeah, you know it's um, my early training was in the style of Kripalu Yoga in Kripalu Center up in Lenox, Massachusetts, and thankfully the whole basis of the practice was, and I and I love I loved what was said a moment ago that you know there, you can't separate the mind from the body, and there is essentially, ultimately, no separation between the two. At least that's the theory from which yoga presents as well. Um, but the emphasis that I, I found particularly refreshing with the Kripalu practice is that that the external be guided by more of the internal. And so constantly, I see the battle that takes place, quote, on the yoga mat for practitioners. They come in with all of the, just all the different strategies, all the different approaches that they use to succeed in life or not succeed in life. And as we say, the yoga mat is a microcosm for one's life. And so all the same tendencies, the same, you can just see everything enacted on the mat that this person will do outside. And I see the same thing also in my therapeutic practice. So I find that, and I see this also the most effective yoga teachers or teachers of fitness even, that they're the ones who, when students are coming in with all this stress, all this frustration, all this pressure, all this anxiety, it's crucial to talk to them while guiding them in the yoga pose to address what's also maybe happening in their mind or what might be happening in their emotions. And I'm a particular fan of addressing fear, since you addressed that, or anxiety, um, or feelings of powerlessness, helplessness that often come up. Feelings of frustration, anger—you know, rebellion. It just again, it all plays out. And it's if if that gets overlooked, back to the whole injury piece that you said earlier. In some research that was done, some institution about um, about yoga was to found that most injuries that happen, both in yoga and in the fitness world, happens when people are. In some way, they're trying to prove themselves or they're caught in some kind of anxiety or fear and they get confused. And so they think, that, you know, they, again, they resort back to some strategy that often may result in some kind of self destructive result.
2: So, Alex Hutchinson, this is like a four-hour conversation in the world of high-performance running or any kind of high-performance exercise. Uh, but, I mean, it's it's impossible really to, uh, as both of you are saying, to talk only about the mind-body connection or to make that too dichotomous a uh, uh, thing, mind uh, versus body. But inevitably, I mean, every high-performance athlete is working with one or more sports psychologists or other kinds uh, of motivators. And, and I gather from reading your work that increasingly what those people, Are doing are asking them asking really intense questions about what what those walls are what are the walls uh, that 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 manifest themselves as the physical sensation of fatigue and and I I assume as everything else gets much more uh, sophisticated and neuroscientific that's something that's getting very sophisticated and neuroscientific.
3: Yeah, it absolutely is, and and so for a guy like me who's a journalist and is always looking for hey, what's new in the world and what can I write about that will be surprising, that's where my interests are focused. So I'm I write about things like using electric brain stimulation to change brain limits. But I'm always reminded every time I write an article like this, I'll, I'll hear from people, and and I'll and I know I'm aware very aware that you know you can look back and w- whether it's a yoga instructor or in the sports world, whether it's a coach that coaches have been playing this role for a long long time and you know one of the favorite things uh, that i read uh, related to this topic was an article by ambi burfoot who was uh, uh, he won the boston marathon back in 1968 and he's, then a, he's a, a local law. boy we know him well uh, ex- uh, of course uh, maybe he's even listening but um, uh, he he wrote an article about this idea of knowing where the end point is like which is exactly what you were talking about in terms of say holding a plank when someone says okay hold a plank until i say so and he said you know that the most valuable and important workout you could possibly do as a runner is to have your coach say, okay, go out and run five times a mile as hard as you can with a couple of minutes of rip break between each one and and finish with nothing left. And then when you finish that workout, to have the coach say, oh, actually go out and do one more at the same pace. And and what Ambi said is, look, if you if you do that workout, and if you have a trusting relationship with your coach, such that your coach knows you, and you know the coach, and you know that the coach wouldn't ask you to do something that's not possible, you'll go out, and, and to your surprise, you'll find you can do another mile at the same pace. And and Ambi says, what you learn from that is is that you're capable of more than than you actually thought possible, and that's the most valuable lesson you can learn in running. So I think that you know, we I, I I'm very interested in the in the sort of the new ways of looking at, at at this sort of question and and what where coaches and therapists and sports scientists are going, but I also think it's important to acknowledge that you know when we talk about some of the great coaches in in history, uh, in in sports or in other fields, uh, these are people who had a, an incredible intuitive feel for how to 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 look at an athlete, to engage with an athlete, to understand where those limits were and to, to figure out what buttons to push or what, what levers to pull in order to try and
2: push those, those barriers back a little bit. All right, we're going to take a, a quick break. We are going to add uh, one of uh, Alex's scientists uh, to this. We'll have more of Shankara, more of Alex after this break.
0: Got to keep on going, looking straight out on the road. Can't worry about what's behind you, what's coming for you,
4: further up the road.
3: Try not to hold on to what is gone. What makes you stop a physically hard task?
5: Fatigue would be one of it.
1: Utter exhaustion? <laughs> you know, you just can't do it anymore. If it's too much on me mentally... I just know pretty much with my gut instinct what's right and what's
0: wrong, so I go with my gut. How
3: important is attitude to enduring a physically hard challenge? Really
1: important because without a positive attitude, you don't have a positive experience. I think it sets a morale and
3: it
0: can get you through a lot of
1: things to persevere, I believe.
2: All right. Those are voices collected by our interns, Katie Pikus and uh, Katie McAuliffe, who are supervised by Katie Talarski. I think you see where we're going with that. Back to fatigue, uh, back to the whole question of where our limits are. Uh, with me in studio is Shankara Newton, who's been teaching yoga for over 28 years. He's also in private practice as a marriage and family therapist. Uh, I should say he has taught me at many, many yoga classes. Uh, Alex Hutchinson is joining us from Toronto. He's a freelance writer. He's the author of Which Comes First, Cardio or Weights, and in, wrote the article that got us, going here. Uh, What is fatigue for the New Yorker, which inspired uh, this show? We've got some great calls here. I will try to get to them. But I do want to um, add to the conversation, Samuel Marcora, professor of exercise physiology and head of the endurance research group at the University of Kent uh, in the United Kingdom. He's uh, joining us now. He's one of the uh, people featured in that Alex Hutchinson article we're talking about. So uh, first of all, welcome to this conversation.
5: Hi, Colin. Thank you for having me
2: and so tell us t- tell us a little bit about your research. What is it that you 've been looking into in terms of that uh, connection uh, of mental state to perception of fatigue
5: well i 've looked at uh, several things I think that the basic um, principle if you like uh, of the of the model that i 'm exploring is that the limit is uh, your perception of effort um, and your motivation rather than a, a physiological limit. Uh, and we are talk about endurance performance, of course. Um, and in terms of what I've done in terms of research is uh, three major things, really. The first one was looking at the effects of mental fatigue. On endurance performance uh, because obviously muscle fatigue, which is basically the weakness in your muscle that occur with prolonged exercise, has been researched for many, many years. But apart from a fellow Italian scientist in 1891, the effects of uh, mental fatigue on endurance performance have been totally ignored. So in 2009, I did a study where I demonstrated that prolonged mental work, so where there's no stress if you like, on, from the neck below, um, had the same effect, negative effect on endurance performance as uh, fatiguing your leg muscles, which was quite um, surprising. Actually, that 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 you know, mental work can have uh, the same uh, negative effect that uh, physical work on uh, on. Uh, in this case, it was a cycling cycling test. Uh, I think that that was the what started, if you like, my 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 career in this in this area. Um, and more recently, of course, you already mentioned that during the program the use of subliminal uh, uh, visual uh, messages um, to uh, manipulate perception of effort and therefore manipulate endurance performance. And maybe later on we can talk about another thing that I'm developing with the Ministry of Defense here, which is uh, what I call brain endurance training, which is a, a kind of brain training. Um, uh, focus at improving endurance performance rather than your, you know, attention and memory is something kind of brain training for athletes, if you like.
2: You know, um, uh, as we're talking about this, one thing that I am, uh, that strikes me is there is a somewhat of a difference between what you're talking about, uh, Samuel Markora and, and Alex, uh, also, and what Shankara is talking about. Maybe I, I'm wrong about this, but let me just pose this to Shankara, and then we can we can circle around a little bit. So, one of the things that uh, you one believes if if you're studying yoga and teaching yoga seriously is that there there are these things that exist outside of the body. The, uh, one of the words that uh, we hear a lot is prana. Um, and and I have to say that even though I'm a somewhat cynical person, when I'm doing a lot of yoga, I start to believe in prana, that, that prana is some kind of energy that I can draw upon that isn't necessarily located in me. It might be coming from someplace else. Um, now. Probably Dr. Socorro would say, "Well, if you believe in prana that's the same thing as prana existing in terms of your your physiological performance but but it is a slight difference right i mean in in yoga we one tends to believe that it's not all located in the body, not all located in the mind that there's at least a third location
0: yeah you know I know we we travel when we go into this arena into a realm where skepticism can start to rain high and you know and I deal with it all the time with practitioners, and you know, particularly husbands bring their, uh, wives bring their husbands or someone, I and mean, I can see it in their eyes. And then by the end of a class, when essentially the person feels more relaxed, more calm in their body, their body is working more efficiently, then something changes, something has shifted. And now I was thinking about what in the Western world, what in Western medicine, Western science, and I even did some research, what's the closest approximation do we have to the term energy? What is energy? How do you measure it? And you know, I even uh, research my Star Wars uh, history. You know the Mida Chlorians. I mean, that that was like of all the Star Wars information, I was like, yeah, that's it. You know, of course they borrowed from the yoga. Well, they borrowed from the yoga tradition there, and it was like, well, that's cool. So, Patrick uh,
2: Scial is the only person in the building who just understood that Star Wars reference. But continue. Yeah. Well. <laughs>
0: So – but, you know, in in all these different more ancient traditions, it's, it is the foundation for all practice that everything we do is designed to try to open to access and harness this thing called energy. But again, back to, you know, what is the closest we have in the West? We might call it metabolism. We call it maybe vital energy, vital force, peak efficiency – you know, it's one of those things you can't easily measure it, but we can feel it and experience it. And I've seen this with i we've had multiple uh, triathletes in our classes. It's the ones who really can grasp this concept. They're the ones I've noticed who get not only the most um, – they can extend their, their uh, effectiveness more, but they also get the most reward and fulfillment from it. So it enhances their whole lives. It's more of a lifestyle change as well as a physical enhancement.
2: Well, Alex Hutchinson, you talk to a lot of runners, and I bet I, I bet you you talk to runners who you know they may not want to use any terms that they would consider woo woo. But on the other hand, they runners like all competitive athletes are looking for something, and they may have a word for it, like flow. Um, they may have, uh, I mean, rowers have a, have a different word for it, uh, but, but athletes are always really kind of looking for a state that they can get in that's radically different from their normal mental state and, and pretty closely resembles um, states that, that, that mystics uh, might talk about very comfortably.
3: Yeah, I mean it's and you know there's a lot of different traditions and different ways of talking about things. The w- one example that I would give that maybe speaks to this is there was a really interesting study a few years ago with the Oxford University rowing team where they had them so if you if you do some hard exercise you will raise your pain tolerance. So they had the individual rowers do a hard rowing session on a on a rowing machine uh and then tested their pain tolerance and sure enough it increased. Then they had the members of this team, who of course had been training together for hours and hours every day, had a lot of team spirit. Spirit. They put them all in the same room on rowing machines next to each other and had them do exactly the same workout. And when they finished, the increase in pain tolerance was far greater. So th- there was something about the collective effort in that case that that led to a greater response, a greater a, you know a greater sense of flow, you might say, or a greater increase in pain tolerance. These things are hard to measure, and I you know I, I certainly don't have all the answers, and I. You know, personally, my my tendency is to look in the brain, look at brain chemicals, to try and look back to evolutionary explanations for why we would be favoring group activity but I think the uh, what you're talking about, well, I think we're all talking about similar things and maybe sometimes using different language.
2: Yeah. I can, also, there's no atheists in the foxholes. And I can tell you, if you're in a really <laughs> hard yoga class, you believe in prana. If you think prana might get you through the next 20 minutes, uh, you start believing in prana. Um, you know, uh, I do want to talk a little bit more uh, to you, Dr. Samuel Marcora, about this question uh, There's some a controversial question about the role of the brain uh, in in manifesting fatigue in us. And so uh, a question that comes up is, well, if we begin fooling the brain, in other words, if we, by subliminal suggestion or, or, or other kinds of, of manipulation of the brain, intentional manipulation of the brain, uh, we get the brain to tell us a different story about how tired we are, whether we need to stop— um, are we, in fact, risking a, a defense system that's there to protect us from overexertion, from stressing our hearts, from hurting ourselves? In other words, how how much do we want to fool the brain?
5: Yeah, I mean, that's uh, it's a good point. I mean, one of the main theories in, in this area is this uh, theory of the central governor, which uh, basically says that the brain shuts us down when before uh, basically we kill ourselves with exercise. Um, having said that, I think there is actually plenty of evidence that, uh, for example, if you you know if you think about there uh, are probably thousands of people every day uh, exercising, even not exercising very hard, and get into a condition of uh, myocardial ischemia. You know the, the angina, the, the 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 pain that you feel in uh, in the chest, um, and actually sometimes it's just just going up the stairs uh, because uh, and in theory. Uh, the, the brain, which is perfectly capable in this, in this patient, should should stop us from you know, going up the stairs and, and, and stressing our uh, heart too much, but that doesn't happen um, and also the, there are examples in highly motivated athletes um, in, in the heat conditions that can actually push themselves to a point where uh, we are actually getting a pathophysiological condition where for example, nerve uh, transmission doesn't work very well i mean you can see them you know not balancing very well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, strongly dehydrated and we call it shock and some people can even die from it. So I actually think that the sensation of, of I actually prefer to call it perception of effort, but let's call it sensation of fatigue, which is uh, a bit more uh, layman term, is actually not there to prevent us from killing ourselves with exercise. I think in, in non-hot conditions, I think the, the standard physiological system that maintains our health uh, would work pretty well. Um, I think the main Um, purpose from an evolutionary point of view of the sensation of fatigue is actually to make us lazy. Um, and basically, to avoid us spending energy when it's not necessary, because in now we have plenty of food, we don't have to make any effort to to eat, um, and so that's actually working against us in this in a way. That's one of the reasons for obesity. But when we evolved, uh, you know, food was scarce, and we had to go for maybe um, a long periods of time without food. So wasting energy doing things that are not very important, um, then uh, would be very uh, detrimental for your survival. And I think this is why the sensation of fatigue has evolved, to maintain our energy balance over a prolonged period of time. I don't think that there is, if you like, a function to protect us during exercise itself. Having said that, of course, if you're talking about athletes, and if we reduce their perception of effort, their sensation of fatigue too much, they may be able, especially as I said, in the heat, to push themselves to a very risky point. Um, but So that that would be kind of dangerous; it would have to be kind of uh, monitored. But I would like to say just one thing, just to introduce something I think the the the, the, the listener might be interested in. Even if let, let's imagine we have a pill that completely. Um, uh, eliminates the, perce- the perception of effort, so that running at any speed, even high speed, feels like walking. Okay, I wouldn't be able to run a, um, a, a marathon in two hours because I, you know, I would reach my physical limit, which is well below a 2 hour marathon. But on the other end, I think that there are several you know, elite runners, that if we had this magic pill that didn't uh, that eliminated the, the sensation of fatigue, there would be several people that could do a, a two-hour marathon physiologically. Um, and possibly in a, in a, in a cool condition, uh, that, that wouldn't have any, I think, serious consequence for their body at all.
2: All right, the great answer, um, we're, I just want to grab a one phone call here. We, By the way, we are going to talk uh, to one of those uh, athletes who uh, can push himself and has pushed himself for uh, endurance, in the final segment, we're going to talk to Kent Tremaine, an endurance athlete featured in the documentary *Desert Runners*. Uh, he's done the the uh, Ford Desert uh, Run, uh, which is about his grueling a thing, and, and it's sort of similar to what we're talking about right now, and has pushed past fatigue. But let me grab a call from uh, uh, Patrick in South Kent. Hi, Patrick.
6: Hey, how you doing? Good. Good. Hey, you guys have a lot, a lot of interesting topics, and you know, I know when you talk about energy and things like that, you, you can fringe on, on sounding quacky. Um, but, you know, when you know, I teach anatomy and physiology, I talk about energy and matter and, and you know, how energy is measured. It's by moving matter. Um, but also, I, you know, I trained to be 240 pounds, uh, you know, and I've also been a competitive cyclist, um, you know, being a student of physiology as well. And one thing that I think that has been touched on is thresholds. And thresholds can be low, and they can be extended over time. And, you know, we have these thresholds that, you know, can, that are really good kind of governors of shutting us off and, and indicators of what we can and can't do. But positive talk is another term for what people call flow. And a good endurance athlete or anyone, you know, if you talk about a Navy SEAL or a recon Marine, they have a positive way of looking at bad situations or, you know, persevering through difficult situations. And when you're going through these thresholds, one thing of having is, well, I'm not there yet, but with more training and, you know, correct training, um, you know, I will get to a higher threshold. Um, What that threshold can be for individuals obviously is going to vary. You know, but, you know, when you look at kind of reaching those thresholds, you know, whether it's lactic acid thresholds that a lot of endurance athletes, uh, you mentioned rowers, they talk a lot about that. You know, you look at people who are, are rowing at, you know, percentages for longer distance and then a higher percentage for a shorter distance, you know, and going back and forth with that, um, I think is a very, very good way to to extend and work on those thresholds. Um, and also offering your body breaks from extreme thresholds, um, you know, cross training, a runner should cycle every, you know, go for a bike ride every four weeks and give those joints a little bit of a break kind of thing. Um, but, you know, the, the, the real thing is is about how are you going to take um, you know, that cognitive kind of ability to say, I need to I need to push here and I need to take a break here.
2: Right. And I think that break part is really important. And there's been an awful lot of um, published work about that whole question about whether that whole stress and recovery model is the only way to look at it. All right. We do really do have to take a break. I'll get in a lot of trouble if we don't. We'll come back with all these terrific guests after this. Still
0: burns. He's going the distance. He's going.
1: You know how to make a chicken tired? You know, I, I think I might have overworked my comedy muscle. I can't really finish this joke. Oh, but I gotta push through. I gotta push through. To make a chicken tired, you put its thighs on... I can't do it. I can't. I'm, I'm totally beat. Can I get some ice over here? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Tularski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bob Newhart. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff petting a sloth, visit our website wnpr.org. And now back to Colin.
2: Boy, sounds like she really hit the wall in there. Um, obviously, earlier today, I was trying—I was writing that script, and I was trying to think of a punchline to "Do you know how to make a chicken tired?" And I started making myself laugh just at the absurdity of the idea that there would be a punchline. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, With us in studio, Shankara Newton, been teaching yoga for over 28 years. I take classes from him at West Harvard Yoga whenever I can. Alex Hutchinson is with us, freelance uh, science journalist, columnist for Runner's World. His book is uh, Which Comes First, Cardio or Weights? And he wrote a December 12th article in The New Yorker, What is Fatigue? Got us thinking about all this. Uh, Also getting us thinking about this are the exploits of Tremaine Kent, an endurance athlete featured in the documentary Desert Runners. Uh, And personal trainer at New Leaf. So, um, uh, first of all, maybe for people who don't know about these races, uh, describe for us, uh, Tremaine Kent, w- what it is that you actually did. What, what What is this for Desert Run?
4: Well, the Desert Run is a series of uh, runs across the most inhospitable deserts in the world. So you have the Atacama Desert uh, in Chile. You have the Gobi Deserts. Um, the Sahara Desert, and then lastly, believe it or not, the Antarctic.
2: Oh, geez. So they
4: they're basically comprise of 250-kilometer uh, races that are done in staged uh, segments across, across the most grueling, uh, inhospitable areas in the world.
2: Now, when you decided to do these races, were you already this highly trained, incredible physical specimen, or was this kind of uh, a virgin territory for you?
4: No, I mean, I've done, uh, I, I do have a background in um, endurance events. However, um, I was quite intrigued by what Patrick was saying earlier, you know, about uh, thresholds. And, you know, one thing that sort of we, we need to consider is uh, the predisposition predisp- uh, predisp- of um, our genes. And uh, um, you, you just mentioned there, have I constantly been in a, an endurance environment? Well, not really. And I'm, I don't have the genes uh For for endurance. So um, it was more of a driving force because of circumstance and the fact that um, I'd lost my partner to lung cancer. And, um, you know, speaking in my uh, sort of community of friends, uh, one of them said, Well, you know, you're not that intelligent um, to to do something drastic to help the charity and the cause, Um, you know, but you're pretty crazy enough to do some uh, endurance events. Um, and, and that's where they they found the four desert races. And believe it or not, it was the second hardest endurance event in the world. The Pacas, Paris to Dakar rally was the first. Um, but as a non-motorcyclist, I couldn't enter that one.
2: So one of the things that you did rely on, I mean, we've talked a lot about this sort of mind-body uh, um, connection, the conversation that our mind is having with our body. I know that you investigated neuro-linguistic programming, which is now increasingly uh, one of the frontiers of this. T- tell us, uh, we have limited time, but but tell us what you can about that.
4: Yeah, NLP. I mean, I've used NLP before when I was in the military from a teaching uh, perspective, the, the, the design of NLP – was to transfer us over to be more like coaches as opposed to instructors, the dictatorial-type individuals. So, you know, we had a lot of of exposure with NLP, Neurolinguistic Programming, and it's been very successful. Now, to apply that to myself, um, when I wasn't fit enough to complete the desert runs and I didn't have, as Patrick said earlier, the correct threshold to do the desert runs, I relied on the NLP uh, concepts of... um, of changing my thought patterns and my beliefs.
2: So, Sean, let me just, uh, uh, Tremaine, just hang on here. As I want to switch over to mm-hmm. Shankara for a second. Because now we are, once again, bumping up, uh, I think, a lot uh, uh, against yogic teaching and, and what the East teaches the West. Because neuro-linguistic programming, to a certain degree, is making the argument, we don't know reality, we know our perception of, mm-hmm. of reality, mm-hmm. which... which uh, um Shankar that comes very, very close to something that that we might hear from from a yogi you know, from a uh,
0: yeah from a yogi right yeah it's a, really the core of all of yoga teaching everything you, these guys are saying it's just it's just all it's so in line it's it's what we have now is the advantage of science and uh language and much more ex, exp, uh, exploration of it to give the words the language of it so it's, it's fantastic hearing all this
2: um and you know Alex um, as you were talking before about the the Ambi Burfoot uh, story, I was also thinking a little bit uh, about what uh, what Tremaine tells us about what Shankara tells us, and there are other trends in 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 training for marathons, for other kinds of distance running or endurance events that really do seem to have a little bit more to do with noticing your reality. I mean, as opposed to you know running the five fastest miles that you can, and then pulling an unforeseen sixth uh, out of yourself. There seems to be a lot of emphasis, that that even in my limited understanding of it these days, in noticing your breath exactly the way you do in yoga. There are runners who are training with handkerchiefs in their mouths or mouths full of water so they can really notice their nasal breathing and and really noticing the rhythm of their body, whether they can maybe even slow their heart rate down as opposed to advance your heart rate. I mean, do do you see much of that? I mean, it seems, once again, to also connect to what Tremaine's talking about, with neuro-linguistic programming too,
3: yeah. I mean, it's it, it, it's especially in this sort of age of technology, it's interesting that I think a, a lot of runners are putting, and uh, very high level runners it, would, would tend to have fewer of the fancy gadgets that you see advertised in terms of having a machine tell you how hard you're going, what, what your heart rate is, what your step rate is. Uh, the, really, the the pinnacle of of the sport is to is to know just by being being so in tune with your own sensations that you don't need a machine to tell you that you're going too hard or not hard enough that you know exactly what's going on in your body and there's a thousand different signals that you're paying attention to and you're not even necessarily consciously aware of all of them but you know uh you y- you're monitoring uh what your body's telling you and you're not you're not taking that as a as a dictation of what the truth is but you're using that feedback to then process that and decide what, what it is you can
2: do. So, Tremaine, Ken, I'm going to ask you to sprint rather than do a distance run. We've only got about 30 seconds left. But I I'm, I think what Alex says would probably re- uh, resonate with you, that what you really learned was self-knowledge, to know yourself, your mind, your body, and, and what kind of conversation was going on.
4: Absolutely. Um, nailed it on the head. The mind navigates the body. It's not the body navigating the mind. So, you know, you look at uh, people like... Uh, the great Muhammad Ali, you know, he hated running. When he used to get up in the morning, they'd have his training gear on the seat next to him to say, okay, I need to get up and run. His legs didn't get up and take him for a run, it was his mind. You know, people put too too much emphasis on the gadgets and the gizmos because they're not mindful of the environment or the presence of the time that they're in. They just want to see a result. And I think once you come back to that and you understand that the mind does navigate the body, there's a lot that you can achieve and especially for non-performance um, athletes uh, as myself.
2: Tremaine, you know, Ken, I, t- I'm, uh, so, I'm so yeah. sorry to interrupt you, but uh, we I hear the music in my headphones. That means we have to go. Thanks especially to Betsy Kaplan who pulled this whole amazing show together. Thanks to Shankara, Alex, Samuel, and Tremaine, and we will be back tomorrow.
1: you feeling? Fine, sir. No, seriously, I just saw you wincing. Are you okay? That's just weakness leaving the body. Now rip up your wussy card and keep up with me, sir. Okay, recruit.